Go ahead and in your Bibles be finding Luke chapter 15. For a good while we were in a series or a study that we were looking at Jesus in the Old Testament or salvation in the Old Testament. And uh, I said our emphasis there was seeing that salvation has always been uh, by grace through faith. It's always been the same way, that we weren't saved by works in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament. Uh, it never was that way. But instead, from the very beginning uh, with Adam all the way through until Christ came, uh, they were saved by grace through faith. And since Christ came, they were saved by grace through faith. And it's always been that way. In the Old Testament, they look forward to Jesus. In the New Testament, we look backward to him. And uh, it was just that they took God at his word. They realized that they were sinners, that judgment was coming, and their only hope was God's mercy. So they were trusting in him. And that was salvation then, that's salvation today, right? Mm -hmm. And so last week we finished it up, and um, just a very brief recap on that. We were looking at a little bit of a bigger picture with the idea of salvation. And we saw the part that Satan played in it, the part that uh, God plays in it, and the part that we play in it, right? Because we find that uh, God could have just cast the devil into hell whenever he, uh, whenever he rebelled, whenever he sinned in the beginning, whenever he fell, but he chose not to, and that Satan is not an uh, equal opposing force to God, but instead he is an insignificant enough being that God is able in his sovereignty to take the most wicked devices of Satan, uh, put them into God's plan, and use them for God's ultimate plan and for God's ultimate purpose. And we've seen that God desires for us to choose him. God desires for us to believe upon him. And for us to have a choice, for us to be able to exercise faith, for us to truly be able to love and have that love relationship with God, there has to be an alternative. And so Satan gets to play that role. And all throughout uh, humanity, Satan has done everything he can to convince mankind that they don't need God, that they can live independently of God, and they've tried, he's tried to convince uh, mankind to rebel and to reject God. And that's his sole purpose. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. He goes about uh, operating in the economy of lies. And so all the things that he does in this world to uh, ruin and to devastate, he throws that off on God, makes people believe that God is the reason for this, or that God doesn't exist because of it, and ultimately they end up choosing him over God. That's pretty messed up, isn't it? And so whenever we realize that God is the creator and sustainer of life, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, he's holy, but he's also loving, that he is just, but he is also full of mercy. And whenever we look at God for who he is, whenever we see how creation testifies of him, if we're smart... We'll put our faith and trust in him. We will seek him. And if we reject him throughout this life, if we say we want to play by our own rules, if we want to operate in the according to the rules in the realm of this world, whenever we pass out of this life, God will honor our choice and he will allow us to go where he's not. And so God always, always leaves the choice up to us. And so I guess that goes completely against Calvinism, doesn't it? I've had several conversations about that lately. But we see that from the beginning. You can't escape from that, 
that God does not force anyone to love Him. He doesn't force anyone to serve Him. He doesn't even force anyone to go to heaven and be with Him. And the same way it goes, He doesn't force anyone to go to hell. It's by our choice. Either we accept Him or we reject Him. And He honors that. And so today, as I said, we have kind of finished up that series. And before I jump into something else, before I commit to a uh, a longer study or something, uh, I'm going to uh, just go through a few um, maybe one-off studies, okay? Just a few thoughts that's just been kind of floating around my head. It may be scary territory, right? But anyway, um, one thing that we did skim over last week is I was using the, the story of the parable, or the parable, the parable of the prodigal son just a little bit as an illustration last week. And I've been thinking on it quite a bit and even uh, happened to start reading a book that I didn't realize was even about it and started reading on that book and everything and just a lot of thoughts that was coming through my mind. And I just uh, have the desire to look into this tonight, not necessarily just the prodigal, but it's a, a good starting point for us uh, into what I'm wanting to, to see from this. And so I'll go ahead and I'm going to... Uh, had all, you, had all you guys to turn. I haven't even turned there yet. Anyway, Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to go ahead and read what's commonly called the, the parable of the prodigal son. And we're not necessarily going to teach on the parable of the prodigal son, but we're going to pull a couple things out of it for us to think on. And although I'm standing up here behind the pulpit, I'm hoping that you all will, uh, will help me out a little bit tonight, okay? And so um, I'm not sure how this will go. We shall see. So anyway, Luke chapter number 15, and starting with uh, verse number 11, says, And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in one. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. 
And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet yet thou never gavest me a kid that I may uh, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive, is alive again, and was lost and is found. So we always call this the parable of the prodigal son, right? But what we find here is that there are two sons, and that's often overlooked, right? Mm -hmm. The funny thing about this parable, and I said we're not going to be teaching specifically on the parable, but the funny thing about this parable is that the main emphasis isn't what's usually brought out, right? What's usually brought out from the parable of the prodigal son? What's the the uh, moral of the story? Someone went astray. Okay. Someone went astray and he came back and the father welcomed him with open arms, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what you do, you can come back to the Lord, right? That's the way it's usually taught and preached. But how often does anyone ever look at the second son? The second son's actually the, the focus of this parable, if you look at it in context. Because who's he telling it to? Well, whenever you look at this, you find that uh, Jesus has all of the, uh, the sinners and the publicans and all of the outcasts are coming to him, and the Pharisees are mad that Jesus is welcoming, welcoming them in, right? And so the Pharisees, being the older brother, is mad that the father is gracious to the ones that have done him wrong, right? And so the whole purpose of this parable was to uh, highlight the attitude that the Pharisees had toward God, right? They said, look at all of the good things that we have done. Look at how we have served you. Look at all of the great works we have had. And yet you're surrounding yourself with this kind of people. And so they were mad at Christ, right? And so that's actually the focus of this parable. But what I want to bring out of this is both sons had an idea about what it meant to be in the father's house. Both sons had an idea about serving the father, right? And so my question tonight for us is why do we serve the Father? Okay? Why do we serve the Father? And these two sons give us two different reasons, but now I want you all to think. Okay? I want you all to think. And so in Christendom, in amongst Christianity, why do people serve the Lord? Okay? Because they love Him. And that's the reason they should. We'll get into that here in a little bit. But what other reasons do people have for serving the Lord? Okay, so some people make, make it out as if they're trying to earn salvation, right? Okay, so he says to get something, right? Because of what men think of them. Okay, so still what they can get from God, but it's not 
salvation. It's okay, I'm saved. Now what can I get, right? Becomes very transactionary. Okay, I'm going to do this and God will do this. It's using God like a vending machine. Okay. What else? Because of his promises, that he promises eternal life to us. Okay. So. Being obedient. You want to be obedient to obey. Okay, so out of duty, right? Okay. So we've got duty. We've got love. We've got um, expectation to receive something, right? We've got fear of man, which is, she said, reputation, right? Okay. A lot of times tradition is going to, to play into man's expectations, right? Mm -hmm. Reputation. Well, we do this because this is the accepted way or this is the way we've always done it. Okay. We've got one more big one that I'm going to try to get pulled out of you. Okay. We want to, but even with that want, there's something always behind it. It's always more than a desire, so there is a motive. And that's kind of what we're after here is what motivates us. What is our motive for our service? Favor. The favor of God, so that's once again trying to receive something from him. Expectation, right? I'm going to do this, he's going to do this. I say y'all gonna be mad at yourselves. <laughs> yeah, it's still receiving something of it. But you're on the right track. What causes people to serve the Lord? Fear. Yeah. There you go. I just had to reword it right. <laughs> and the reason I said that you all would be mad at yourselves if I said that one out loud is because I believe it's one of the most common ones, right? It's definitely one of the most common used tactics amongst uh, oppressive leadership, right? And so people will serve the Lord out of fear. And so it's not if I do this, God will do this. It's if I don't do this, God will do that, right? And so we find, what, five different things here, five different motivations that people have for serving the Lord, for obeying Him, right? And so love, fear, and I find that those two tend to be the opposites of each other, right? Uh, duty, or you could say debt, right? God's done all this for me, so I, I'm indebted to Him. I have to do this for Him. Right? So we've got debt. And then the other one was the expectation, this idea that I'm going to do this and then God's going to owe me something. That's somewhat the alternative there for the, the duty or debt model, right? And then, of course, we've got the, the last one there was uh, the fear of man. For the sake of reputation, everyone is expecting me to do this, so I'm going to continue doing this. And really with that, there is no... 
uh, no thought toward God necessarily. They are doing these things just because that's what society, it's what their family, it's what their uh, community, their church, whatever it is, expects of them. So they are doing these things just because it is what is uh, hoist on them, right? And so as we're looking at this, I want to kind of weed through these and think through these a little bit, okay? Because whether you realize it or not, one of these are what's driving you in your walk with God. Right? Unless I've missed something, and if I have, let me know. But one of these is the reason, and sometimes it can be subtle, and sometimes it's not what you think, because you say, oh, I'm serving God because I love Him. But sometimes we are mistaken because it's not necessarily love that is causing us to serve Him, right? And I guess one of the ways to kind of measure that is whenever you mess up, whenever you fail him, what is your response? Right? Or the opposite of that, and we'll see this here in a minute, is that whenever life doesn't go your way, so it's not whenever you fail him, but by your perspective, when he fails you, how do you respond? Everybody all right? Are you thinking? Okay. So as we look at this, I want to look from the perspective of these two sons first because that's where we read, right? And so can you see these motives in the story of the prodigal? Whenever we look at the, uh, the first brother, the one that went away and wasted his substance on riotous, riotous living, at that point in time, he didn't care about pleasing the father. Right? So he wasn't serving the Father. He wasn't pleasing the Father. He wanted the blessings. He wanted the benefits. He didn't want to subject himself to the Father. He wanted out from underneath the Father, right? Mm -hmm. And so plenty of people in this world want nothing to do with God. There's even some Christians, whether they've been hurt or bitter or whatnot, uh, that have turned their back on God and said, I don't want any part of his house. And we look at this parable and we say, well, God's willing to receive them back at any time, right? doesn't matter what they've done. Any lost person that will turn to God, he's willing to take them in. But whenever this son gets to the place where it says that he came to himself and he realized that even his father's servants were living better than he was, he made up a scheme. He made up a plan. What did he tell himself? What was his plan? To plead and what else? So, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to serve. Okay? He wasn't going to go and submit himself to being a son, but he says, I'm going to be as a servant. Well, why is he going to have to be a servant? He's going to have to pay for his transgressions. He's going to have to earn his way back, right? He's going to have to repay, make restitution, do penance. Yeah. Right? And so he sees it as this way. He says, okay, I'm going to go back and I know that God is good. I know that he is willing to accept me in. But after I get in the father's house, I'm going to have to repay him for all of the goods that I've wasted, for all of the wrongs I've done. I'm going to have to make up for it. Y'all see it there? And so that would be the idea of debt or of duty in serving the Lord 
is that, okay, look at all the Father has done, how good he is. Now, since he has saved me, now I have to work to make it at least seem like he made a good choice in saving me. I've got to try to at least repay part of what he has done for me. Have you ever been maybe in this place where you thought this way or been around someone who did things this way? And they reckoned it out of duty or out of debt that I have to serve God after all he has done for me. Okay, There are some of the songs in the hymn book I won't sing because this is the tone that they have. There's one of them I'm thinking of right now, and I know it's in our hymn book. And it talks about, I gave, I gave, I gave my all freely. What hast thou done for me? What is it? Yeah. And uh, I've heard that song, and every time I hear that song, it grates on me. Because it is not, it is not right with the gospel. It is not biblical. Okay? And by the way, this is a, a tangent, okay? Just because it's an old song doesn't mean it's biblical. Right. <laughs> and so there's, there's several songs, even songs Les is going through, and she's learning them, and I'm like, and I quit with that one. I'm not singing it at church. He's like, why not? It's a good song. I'm like, check out the doctrine. No, it's not biblical. But anyway, this idea of we serve him out of duty, he is expecting us to do this. We have to do this after all he's done for us. And the reason why this is dangerous, any guesses? It's works-based. It's works-based. It's taking it back and basically it's mortgaging salvation. It's getting a bank loan on salvation. You're going and God's fronting the payment, but you're expected to repay his payment, right? And if that is the way that we see salvation, then we are still earning it. Then it cheapens salvation. And if we were ever able to earn salvation, or if we were able to repay Christ for what he did, then what was the point in him dying on the cross? And so salvation isn't a mortgage that we have to repay. It isn't a debt that we owe. Uh, the Bible tells us that in Romans chapter 3, verse number 24, that we are justified freely. Okay, and there's plenty of different places in Scripture where we see that salvation is a gift. Now, if I came and I gifted you something, but I expected you to be indebted to me as a servant or as a slave afterward, would that be a gift? Okay, I give Jacques a car. If this hits too close to home. <laughs> anyway, I give Jacques a car, but now he has to be my chauffeur. How's that going to work? Is he going to be grateful for that gift? Is that a gift? No, no it's got strings attached. And so you start putting strings on that gift, it no longer becomes a gift. It ends up being a noose they're going to wrap around your neck and choke you out, right? And so would it not be the same way if we served God because we were indebted to him, would that not still be oppressive? Would that still not build a wall between us and God? And so we see this as if not he is my father and I am his child, but I am the slave and he is the master, right? The Bible says that the borrower is servant to the lender. And so if he was merely lending us salvation, 
if it was just borrowing and it was a debt that we owed, then our service for him is going to be that of a slave. And how many people, how many slaves do you think there is in the world that actually have a good relationship with a slave owner? How many people like the one that they're indebted to? It's oppressive, right? And so this is problematic for us. And we see all throughout Scripture that God does not want us serving him begrudgingly. He doesn't want us serving him out of a debt that we reckon. He definitely has never tied strings to salvation, okay? And so we find in, uh, I'll go ahead and turn it over here because hey, it's a Bible study. Matthew chapter 15. Verses 8 and 9. It says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. If you look at Judaism in the New Testament, if you look at it in the Gospels, the Jews had came up with this system they had concocted all these extra rules and regulations, and they have held them over the Jewish people, and they have used several of these motivations. Of course, the Jewish people were afraid. They were afraid of God, okay? Uh, not only that, but they felt indebted to him. And so all through this, we find that even though the children of Israel were brought out of slavery from Egypt, that the people of uh of Jesus' day, the leaders of Jesus' day were seeking to bring them back into bondage. The Lord, the Apostle Paul, and different ones even said so much, right? Even the Christians, after they had been saved, we read the, the book of Galatians, right? After the Christians, they had been saved, and still the Judaizers were seeking to bring the Christians back under a yoke of bondage, okay? The idea of that yoke of bondage meant that they were in servitude. It meant that they were basically enslaved, that they were uh, bound to obey. It wasn't, by, it wasn't by will, it was by force, okay? And so there's many Christians to this day, and we might all be guilty of this from time to time, of feeling guilty, feeling as if because of all God has done for us, then we must do all of these things, right? And then this is where fear enters in, or else he's going to be mad at me. Or else I'm going to be a bad servant. Right? Even whenever we look at, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he's talking about uh, whenever they are appointing bishops, elders over the churches, it says that if any man desire the office. Right? Mm -hmm. And it says, let him... Take it not by constraint, okay, but of a ready mind. And so whenever we look at passages like that, the Lord is saying through Apostle Peter, he's saying the ones that I have serving me, I don't want them to be forced into doing so. I don't want them to feel like they have to, that they're indebted or that they must do it, okay? Okay. And so we have, with that, debt or duty. The next one I want to look at is this idea of entitlement or of reward. We are looking at the, the two sons, uh, 
the other son, the, the older son, the one that stayed at home, did you notice his attitude, his reasoning, whenever he heard about what was going on, that the father had forgiven the, the younger brother, the one that had uh, wasted the substance with riotous living. He got mad about it. Mm-hmm. He asked the servants what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And after they told him, he refused to go in the house. Just a, a little bit of an idea of the, the context in this. He was mad because his brother had disgraced the father, right? And by him staying out of the party and having this attitude toward the father, he was disgracing the father. He was still hurting the heart of the father. He was hurting the reputation of the father by his actions, right? But getting back on track with what we're looking at, the older son said, I have served you. I've never went anywhere. I've always obeyed. I've always done what you said. And I am expecting restitution, right? He says, never have you given me even a goat, let alone the fatted calf. I'm expecting repayment. I'm expecting the benefits and the blessings. And so you might judge the younger son for saying, dad, I don't want to wait for you to die. I want my stuff now. But the older son says, I'm doing everything not because I love the the father, not because of anything he means to me. I'm doing all of this because of what I can get out of him, right? And so essentially, whenever he finds out about what happened with the younger brother, he says, I'm not going to be happy until the father gives me what is due me. And so we look at that guy, we're kind of mad at him, right? But this is another motivation that people have for serving God. And they say, if I do this, I expect that, right? And so if I was just to to make it pretty simple, have you ever heard someone say, I've been faithful, I've went to church, I've tithed, I've prayed, I read my Bible, I don't know how God could let this happen to me. That reveals their heart toward God. Why did they serve him? To receive the blessings, to receive the benefits, right? And so they're treating God like a vending machine and they're saying, okay, God, I'll read two chapters a day. And so I expect safety as I go and I expect easy traveling, my job to go smoothly and all these different things, right? One reason why this is a a common and popular uh, motivation in Christianity, you look at things like the the prosperity gospel, right? You look into some of the different movements amongst Christianity today, and what they do is they promise, if you come to the Lord, then he's going to do these things for you. And they start out their very walk with God on this understanding that this is how it works— You put in, you get out. You put in, you get out. Mm -hmm. And so they erase off any idea of any kind of debt. They aren't trying to earn their salvation, but instead they're coming to God for what they can get out of him. And now I'm not even going to go into, okay, who's saved and who's not. That's between them and God. Okay? But many people are looking at this and saying, okay, I have this idea. If I serve God, 
then he's going to bless my finances. He's going to bless my family. He's going to bless my health. And what's the problem with that? What happens? Hmm? Okay, well, there's entitlement. Disappointment. Disappointment, there you go. But even the entitlement, that's a bad attitude toward God. Because honestly, if all he does is save your soul from hell, you have gotten more than you deserve. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You've gotten far more than you deserve. And so there is nothing that you're going to do on this earth that is ever going to even begin to indebt God to you. Okay? As I've said many times, he puts the air in your lungs. He causes your heart to pump. He keeps the world spinning around. He keeps everything in place. And he knows every hair on your head. And for you to think because you've read a couple chapters or attended a couple services or threw a few euros in the offering plate, that somehow he's indebted to you. That's pretty messed up, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But what you said, you said the problem with it is disappointment, right? Because what happens whenever your expectations aren't met? Whenever your health fails, whenever the money runs out, whenever things get rocky in life, what is your response? If this is your motivation, your mindset. Oh, God, let this happen. Yeah. After all I've done for you, God, how could you do this to me, God? And so you have this idea that you deserve so much better than this. And it's funny how lightly we esteem what God does and how highly we esteem our efforts, right? And so you do, you cheapen a God, you uh, turn it in, like I said, to a vending machine, to a transactionary. And so you're saying, okay, God, the only reason I'm serving you is so you'll bless me, right? And I think this was the attitude of Jesus, or not Jesus, excuse me, Judas. Bad misspeak there, right? Not as bad as others I've had, but anyway. Yeah. So anyway, uh, th I think this was the problem with Judas because Judas was investing his life in Jesus. He was saying, okay, if I follow this guy and he ends up being the Messiah, then look at how that's going to benefit me. Look at how I'm going to prosper being one of his followers. And when that didn't materialize... Judas was willing to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver, right? Mm -hmm. He says, if I can't prosper following him, I'm going to prosper by rejecting him. Okay? And so we see that going on. Now, that's not saying that Judas was ever saved, but I'm saying this is the, the mentality toward Jesus. But even with, um, even with the rest of the disciples, while Jesus was still there... How many times were they fighting over who would be the greatest, over the positions that they would have? The, the mother came to Jesus and said, Grant that my sons would set one on the right hand and one on the left in your kingdom. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that really highlight this is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, that Peter comes to Jesus. Of course, it was Peter, right? And he says, we have left all and followed you. What shall we have? Right? Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, whoa, there, you've got the wrong idea about this. But he says, you can trust me that I will take care of my people. Mm -hmm. 
That's basically what he tells him. He says, anyone who has left houses or land or any of these things for my sake shall receive a hundredfold. Now, he's not telling his people, follow me because, uh, going back to the prosperity gospel, you give 10 euro and God's going to give you a thousand because it says he's going to reward you a hundred. No, that's heresy. But anyway, um, but what he's telling Peter there is don't worry about what you have lost because you stand to gain far more from serving me. Mm -hmm. Okay. He doesn't go through and define and say, okay, you're going to do it this way. You can account for it in your checkbook this way. But he tells them, what you need to do is trust me, I'm going to take care of you. Okay? And so that completely shifts the narrative that it's not about, okay, we left this, what do we get? It's you get me and I'll see to your needs. Right? I already kind of skipped over the, the fear of man. That was the first one that I was planning on looking at. Uh, just because, honestly, we know that one's foolish. If you are serving anyone because of what other people besides what you're serving thinks, you're already in bad shape, right? If I'm only good to my wife when other people are around so that other people will think well of me, that's a mess, isn't it? If I'm allowing my actions and my, uh, uh, my service to the Lord be completely motivated, not by God, not by my relationship with him, not anything that he has done, but simply by everyone else, I'm not serving God anyway. I'm serving them. The Bible tells us that the fear of man worketh a snare. And while we look at this and we know that it's stupid to just conform, just do the things that's expected, not for God, but because of what everybody else thinks, even the way that I just worded it makes it hit just a little bit closer home, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because there is always pressure from those around you to conform, for you to fit in, for you to do what everybody else thinks of you. I find even as a pastor, this is one of the things that I wonder, okay, well, what about other pastors? What about other churches? What about those who are observing ministry and different things like that? What, are the, what do they have to say about it? Who cares? Right? Because I'm not serving them. I'm serving the Lord. I'm not uh, governed by the opinions of brother so-and-so down the road, but by the word of God. Right? Right? And so it's not out of debt or out of duty. It's not out of entitlement or out of reward. It's not out of the fear of man. But now I want to come to the two, two major ones here, fear and love. These are two of the ones that I think are probably the most common. I know the whole idea of the entitlement or reward, uh, if you get into, as I said, like pr prosperity gospel circles, charismatic circles, those are big, Right? But whenever we start looking at fear, people will quote the verse that says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? We see plenty of verses throughout the Old Testament that talks about fearing God. Okay? But we have to understand what it means by that kind of fear. Right? If you look it up, 
and see the words that are translated into fear in that passage that says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's not talking about uh, to be afraid. It's not talking about terror, okay? It's talking about reverence or respect. And so whenever it looks, or whenever we look at that and it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, whenever you understand that God is the authority, that he is the creator, that he is the judge, that he is the one that determines what is right and what is wrong, and the one that we answer to, then that changes our perspective. Then we're going to have a little bit of a reverence, a little bit of respect for him. But it doesn't mean that we are afraid that he's going to whack us, that he's going to strike us dead, that he's Zeus on top of Mount Olympus throwing lightning bolts. But it helps us to revere him because of his authority. Okay, And we find all the way through Scripture, it compares our relationship to God with that of a father and his child. Right? And does everyone in here think that the children should have a healthy respect a healthy fear of the parent. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that they should be cowering in the corner of their bedroom whenever they see dad coming up the driveway? Is that a healthy fear and respect? There is a difference, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And so the passage that we see there, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, notice another thing that it says, it is the beginning of wisdom. So whenever a man realizes God is in charge, you say, hold on here, I'm going to start paying attention to how I act, right? If we come out of the father and child relationship, uh, think about our relationship with the guards, right? They have an authority. Why is it that you uh, maintain a certain speed when you go down the motorway? Because they are able to bring consequences on you if you go too fast. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you have a respect, a reverence for the guards. But if you are afraid of them, thinking that they are going to come and beat the living daylights out of you, that is not a healthy respect for the guards. Okay? You see the difference? Okay. I pointed out there a minute ago that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's a starting place, right? But we also find that perfect love casts out all fear. And that is talking about the type of fear of a terror. I'm not saying that you ever quit respecting God. Right? But as I said earlier, fear is a good motivator. People will do insane things out of fear. Mm-hmm. You ever watch someone get afraid they lose all common sense, don't they? Mm-hmm. And they will do anything mm-hmm. when they are afraid. This is why the cults like to use fear. This is why even non-cults, even even some churches and some pastors will use fear to motivate people because it's easy. It's easy. And so if I go through the Bible and I talk about the she-bears eating the children whenever they made fun of Elisha, if I talk about God raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, Ananias and Sapphira lying and being struck dead. Those are fearful things, aren't they? And I could take those and I could use those and mold them into a way to motivate you out of fear. 
and make you to where you are afraid of God, afraid of one misstep, afraid that if you don't obey everything that you've been taught, that somehow God is going to wreck your life, that God is going to destroy you, that because you miss church one Sunday, that God's going to cause you to go off the road and hit an electric pole and die. Some of you are laughing, some of you not, because you know that's real, right? Not real that God does that, but real that there are those who teach that. We can motivate out of fear. Does God want us to serve him out of fear? Does God seek for us to be terrified of him, afraid of him? Going back to the father and the child illustration. With all of my kids, they have an understanding that I'm the authority, that whenever they disobey, that there are consequences. But never have I ever wanted them to have to tiptoe around dad. For them to be afraid of dad and what dad was going to do to them. Because if they were that way, I'm not a loving father, I'm an abusive parent, right? And there's something messed up about that. And so as we're kind of looking here between fear and love, whenever we are coming to God, we realize that because of God's love, he does have to chasten, right? But because of his love, that his chastening is perfect. It's not abusive. What would you think of me as a parent if I allowed my children to do anything and everything, even that which was destructive and harmful and hurtful to them? If I was neglectful of them and allowed them to play in traffic and stick wires in the, the wall plugs, and would I be a good father? Being a good parent is going to keep them away from those things, right? But it's not going to be heavy and oppressive and abusive, but instead it's going to be measured and it's going to be uh, is going to be fitting, right? And so I guess what I'm trying to say with this, this whole idea of fear, God is not some abusive parent waiting for you to make one small mistake so he can lay the smack down on you. But whenever we do sin, there are going to be consequences that he allows to come because he is a loving father. He is a good father. He will not allow his children to sin successfully because he loves them too much, right? And so whenever we do sin, he is long-suffering, he's merciful, he's patient, but he is guiding us, he is directing us, first of all, trying to get our hearts. Mm -hmm. But if he can't get our hearts, he will allow chastening to come. He will allow circumstances come to our lives in proportion to the mess that we are in to bring us back to himself. Okay? So you do a little slip up. He's not going to come and make catastrophic things happen in your life every time you mess up. But there are a lot of people who are afraid to do anything. Because if I do, God's going to be angry at me. God's going to be mad at me. God's going to punish me. And so they will walk that tightrope. Their life is walking on eggshells. And so what's their relationship with God like? 
It's going to be distant. If we're governed by fear, we ever want to be close to God? Are we going to desire his presence? Are we going to seek after him? We're going to do the least that we can to avoid his displeasure. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to see God as uh, heavy-handed, unreasonable, unloving, unmerciful. Our view of God is going to be completely twisted, completely distorted, and far from what we see who he is in Scripture. And so all of these things that we're going to see here are going to keep us from having a right relationship with God. They might get the right actions. You might do the right things and follow the right list and have all the outward appearances looking good. But what was the verse we looked at there earlier? They draw near me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. Whenever I read that passage, Jesus is looking out at all the religion in Israel at that time, and he says they're doing all the actions that are doing it all for the wrong reason. And it broke his heart because God didn't desire just the actions, but he wanted that fellowship. He wanted that relationship. He wanted that heart. And so they started focusing on the actions instead of on the relationship. They started focusing on the law and not on the lawgiver, right? And so it really distorted their relationship with God. And so the final one that we look at here, why or what is the right motivation? What is the right reason to serve God? It's the only one we got left. Everybody check out already? A little louder from the back. Love. 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 The Bible says we love him because he first loved us, right? Mm -hmm. Back to the passage I quoted there a minute ago, 1 John chapter number 4. It says, perfect love casts out all fear. I want to go ahead and I'm going to read more of that passage and just that little section that I have memorized. 1 John chapter number 4. Verse number 16. I'll say once again, if you all have anything to add in, speak up. First uh, John 4, 16. And we know we have believed, excuse me, and we know, let me try this one more time. Verse 16. And we have known and believed the love <laughs> that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And so all throughout that passage, what he is telling us is that because of what Christ has done for us, the verse, um, let's see, verse number 17, here it is, love made perfect. It's talking about how because we have received complete forgiveness, because Christ was judged on our behalf, he took our sins upon him, 
We don't have to fear the judgment. Christ has already went through that. And so now, because of what he has done for us, fear is done away with. Our sins that we commit are freely forgiven because of what Christ has done. Because whenever we're looking at this in fear, thinking, if I make a mistake, he is going to uh, be so angry at me. He's going to come down and he's going to abuse me in all these different ways. Hold on here. Whenever we sin, was those sins not already paid for on the cross? What sins did Christ die for? You say, well, the ones in the past. Well, you weren't even born whenever he died on the cross. All your sins were in the future then, right? He died for all of your sins. He forgave all of your <laughs> sins. And so that makes us realize, okay, my sin's taken care of. I don't have to worry about that price being held over me any longer. I don't have to worry about the guilt and the shame and all of that, that Christ took that upon him. And so it says in verse number 17, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Anyone ever stood before a judge boldly? You can't if Jesus has already paid your offenses, right? We may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we. He took our sins and he put his righteousness upon us. Okay? So how is it that we don't have to be afraid? If you're lost, if you're unsaved, then yes, be afraid. Right? You ever see the meme that says, only God can judge me? And that should make you very afraid? But God already judged me in Christ Jesus. And so now I have nothing to fear. I don't have to fear the judgment. I have been reconciled to Christ. I've been reconciled to God. I am a child of God. He is my father. I am his child. I am accepted in the beloved. Mm -hmm. And so it tells us that the result of that should be love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Well, whenever we think about love, what is required for love? We have a very skewed version of what love is today, don't we? What is love? It requires a commitment, right? It requires a choice. Okay. Okay. Eh, maybe. God's love toward us is unconditional, but we've we tend to fail to live up to that one on the other side. So I can't put that as a requirement for love. Agape love, yes. Okay. What? Someone else said something. <laughs> oh, no expectations. Okay, no expectations. Okay, it's not a, not a, uh, I guess that goes back into what Jennifer was saying with the uh, unconditional, right? But just a different way of stating it kind of changes our perspective on it. And so if it is with strings attached, is it love? No. I'm going to love you as long as you do what I say. Is that love? No. Okay. So it has to be selfless, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we get to the uh, biblical idea of what love is, love is a choice that we make. It is not something you fall into. It's not a mud hole. Right. Okay? I've told my girls this before. They get sick of hearing it because, you know, you see all these movies. Oh, I fell in love. No, you don't fall in love. Love is not a mud hole. Okay? But love is a choice that you make. And you make that choice to trust that person 
commit to that person, to put that person before yourself. And I think that's really the crux of what love is, is that decision that I'm going to esteem, I'm going to elevate someone else before myself, that I'm going to put their needs before my needs, right? We find over and over through Scripture the idea that love costs. And I'm not meaning chocolates and diamond rings. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that for God so loved that he gave. And so that lets us know that when we love, what flows out of that is giving, right? We give of ourselves. We give of our time. We give of our energy. We give of our finances. We give of all kinds of things when we love someone or something. Okay, And so you have this idea, if you look at where someone spends their time, if you look at where someone spends their money, if you look at what someone is willing to be inconvenienced by, that's what they love. Mm -hmm. Some people love football. Some people love different sports, different things like that. You say, well, how do you know they love it? Where's all their free time going? Why are they spending all their money on Right? And so that's just an idea here of maybe a, a simpler idea of love, but love requires a commitment. It requires a sacrifice. It requires a choice. It requires putting someone else before yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And we see that the Bible says that God is love. Right. He is fully committed to us. He has chosen us. He is willing to give everything to bankrupt heaven to be reconciled unto us, right? Mm -hmm. He puts our needs before his own. I go to, what is it, 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about love, right? Charity. But anyway, whenever we see this with love, we love him because he first loved us. We start understanding. I think this is, this is one of the things I was wanting to bring out a minute ago, and I didn't. In order to love someone, we have to get to know them. And the more that we know them, the more that we're going to love them. This is one of the reasons why, you know, whenever people are so infatuated with someone in their first weeks, months, even years of knowing that person, oh, I love them. It's infatuation because love takes time. Yeah. Love takes time. And so God knows us. He loves us anyway. We get saved. We know a little bit about him. It starts out with maybe infatuation. But the more we get to know him, the more we walk with him, the more time that we spend with him, the more that love that he has captures our heart, the more our love for him grows, and the easier it is to serve him. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Notice just that conditional at the beginning of that, if you love me. So what does that mean? If you don't love me, I don't really care whether you keep my commandments or not. I want your heart first. Isn't that what that means? If you love me, keep my commandments. And he says his commandments are not grievous. He says, I'm not a hard taskmaster. Okay? Even in every other love relationship, there is an expectation as well. With our marriage, with our love for one another, there are conditions on it. There are going to be certain things 
that she is going to require of me. We talked earlier about the expectations, right? But there are some of them that are reasonable. If I really love her, am I going to be running around with other women? I have two or three on the side, and I tell her, but I love you. She's going to say, no, you don't, or you wouldn't do that, right? If I love her, I'm not going to be doing things that she hates, usually. <laughs> you know, sometimes I've got to pick a little bit in measure. But does that not carry over with our relationship with God? If I love God, then the things that he hates should be things that I don't want to do. Does that make sense? The things that he loves should be things that I want to do. But even taking that a little bit further, I said that it is based on knowledge as well. Whenever I look at God and I know who he is, I've experienced his care. I understand how he loves me. I know that he's in control. He has all power. That his will for me is good. That his commands are not oppressive. Whenever I realize that everything that he does command is for my good, every thou shalt not is not for our displeasure. It is for our good, for our protection, for our safety, for our health, right? And so whenever I look at it and I realize everything that he does is good for me. Everything that he's doing in my life, he can work together for good. Whenever I realize I can trust him and that I can trust him, I can trust where he's leading me, what his will is. Whenever I realize all of those things, then I am going to want to submit to him, to follow him, right? And so therefore, love is going to be my motivation. I look to him and say, he saved me. He's the God of all creation. He's got everything in place. He's got eternity waiting for me. And he's not trying to punish me. He's not trying to withhold from me. But instead, he is seeking for me to grow. He's seeking for me to prosper. He's seeking me to be transformed in his image, to be renewed in my mind. And I say, everything he wants for me is good. So it's no longer, okay, I'm going to serve him to get things out of him. Yes, whenever I serve him, he does bless, right? Whenever I am serving him because I love him, not because he has paid for my sins and now I'm indebted to him. Now, instead of debt, it's gratitude. That's a completely different way of looking at it, right? I'm doing this because of all he's done for me. How could I not serve him? Gratitude, not debt. I'm not fearing him because I know how he looks upon me. I know how he loves me. And he is not seeking my hurt. He's seeking my good. So I don't have to be afraid of him. Now, there may be some fear that enters in because I'll be afraid of going outside of his will because I'm going to miss the fellowship and the blessings. Right? I'm not afraid of my wife, but there are some things that I'm not going to do because I'm going to harm my relationship and I'm going to miss that fellowship with her, right? You see a difference? That'd be the only fear there. 
I fear of losing her. If I do this, she's not going to stick by me. I'm going to lose her. Now, God's not going to abandon us. He's not going to forsake us. But if I turn away from him, if I fall out into sin, I get myself in a mess, I'm going to miss the blessings and benefits of being by his side. I don't want that. Because I love him. I want to be near him. Just an extremely good example here. Uh, I am just want to give the, the reference. I'm not going to turn there for right now. But in John chapter number uh, 13, you have Jesus telling his disciples that he's going away. What is the disciples' response? Where are you going? We want to be there with you, right? Don't go away. We want to be with you. We find even at the Lord's Supper that, excuse me, that John was laying on the bosom of Jesus. These guys wanted to be where Jesus was. They weren't afraid of him. Even in Scripture, how many times does God appear to people, or does Jesus appear to people, and angels even appear to people, first thing they say is, fear not. Yeah. Right? First thing he does is absolving fear. But his disciples, as they were following him, they weren't following him because they were afraid, if I don't do this, he's going to be mad at me. If I don't do this, he's going to punish me. They said, I want to obey him because look at him. I want to be with him because he's Jesus. I don't want him to go away because I can't imagine my life without him. They wanted his presence. They weren't afraid of him. And we see that over and over and over again all throughout Scripture, even the Apostle Paul. Paul sometimes may have ventured over in that idea of debt because he was always aware of where God brought him from, right? He wasn't one of the disciples that laid on Jesus' uh, bosom or anything. He was one of them that saw Jesus shining from heaven. But even with that, there's never that pressure of saying you're going to serve him because if you don't, it was always even in Paul's mind, I can't believe that he picked me. I can't believe that he was willing to use me in spite of all I did. I can't believe that he actually forgave me. And with a God like that, with a love like that, with a forgiveness like that, how can I not serve him? He had a love for the Lord. That's apparent in everything that he did. So all the way through Scripture, we find that. And it's played out all the way through Scripture that they were motivated by love. Not by fear. Not by duty. Not just to get something out of him. But whenever they got near him, whenever they saw him for who he was, they loved him. And they sought to do that which was pleasing to him. My closing thought in all of this, unless you all have something else, is I was just looking through today in Romans. I was actually, I was talking with Peter the other day is one reason why this came up. But in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, y'all familiar with that section of Scripture? In that section of Scripture, Paul talks about the good that I would, I do not, that that I would not, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God that through Jesus Christ, my Lord, right? You remember that passage? 
What is he saying? He says, I want to serve God. He says, because I am saved and I have the spirit in me, I realize what he's done. I want to serve him. But I've still got the oh, sinful man hanging around, dragging me down, giving me problems. And I keep wanting to do good and I don't do it. I keep trying not to do bad and I don't do it. All right, and I, I do it anyway. That's what he's saying, right? And we all resonate with that. We all have experienced that if we're honest. Right? And he says, who can deliver me? And all through that passage, it talks about the law and it talks about how oppressive the law is and how even though the law is a good thing and that he acknowledges it as a good thing and just the fact that he desires to obey the law, he's acknowledging that the law is a good thing, but the law is powerless to deliver him from that old man. And so he says, the law cannot deliver me from it. Jesus is the only thing that can deliver me from it. And you say, well, where does all this tie into this? Here's the thing. If we get our focus on all of the things that we do, we've got it backward. We've got it backward. Here's the way the typical Christian life works. I've got to do all of these things so I can have a relationship with God. Is that the way it is? And so if I do this, if I do that, if I don't do that, if I don't do that, then God's going to accept me. Then God's going to smile down at me. Then I'm going to be able to enter into his presence. Then I'm going to be able to rejoice in him and I'll have happiness and God's going to be happy with me and I'm going to have a victorious Christian life. And what we're doing in that is we're bringing ourselves back under the law. We are saved by grace, but then we get to work. And we think that our way to the heart of God is through the works that we do, the actions that we do, the service that we do. And so what is Paul telling us there whenever he says that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that delivers us? Just the same as for our salvation, we had to come to the end of ourselves and realize the only way we were going to get victory, the only way we were going to get salvation was if Jesus Christ did a work in our lives. That was the only way we were going to be saved. Why do we think that we can clean ourselves up? Why do we think we can sanctify ourselves after we're saved? And so he says, it is only by me coming to Christ that I'm able to get victory over all of these things. So he completely flips the script and he says, rather than seeking Christ through overcoming these actions, if I seek Christ first, he will lead me to overcome these actions. Right? We put the cart before the horse. And so whenever we fall in love with Jesus, whenever we look at him, we learn from his word, we learn from walking with him, and we are seeking after God, and we're saying, okay, I want him. We're going to be reading his word. We're going to be in prayer to him. We are going to be seeking after him. And as we are doing that, then he is going to transform us. And he is going to help us. And we're going to desire him more, desire the world less. And over time, he is going to deliver us from sin's power. Eventually, he's going to deliver us from sin's presence. So if you think that you can't get to Jesus until you have victory over all of these things and you're doing all the right things, then you've got it backward. If you get to Jesus first and make him your priority, not your actions, 
but your Savior. If you put him first, then he is going to help everything else fall into place. Does that make sense? And I'm still working on wrapping my mind around this, just so you know. Because it takes time. Because in our minds, it is okay if I do all the works. If I serve him, he's going to be happy with me. Then I can experience the relationship with him. Seek the relationship with him. But you say, well, how do you do that? Well, if I want a relationship with my wife, how do I get a relationship with her? Spend time with her. I'm going to get to know her. I'm going to talk to her. I'm going to learn about her. Right? If I want a relationship with her, I'm not going to be spending all of my time providing all the things that I think she wants. Because if I spend all my time at work trying to make enough money to put her in a nice enough house and give everything else, is our relationship going to grow? We can get a divorce from a very nice house. Right? If I'm putting all my effort in and all of the works that I think she wants me to do and I neglect my relationship with her, our relationship's not going to grow, is it? I can be very busy for the Lord and not even have a relationship with Him. Yeah, that is very true. So if you spend time with Him, I'm reading His Word to learn about Him, to figure out who He is. Not to find out, okay, what do I need to do next, God? Not, okay, preacher said I have to read the Bible. But it's, okay, I've got a Savior who's put considerable effort to put his word into my hand so that I may know him. I want to find out about him. Right? So through his word, we come to church because we're learning about him. We're hearing about him. We're praising him. We're talking about him, right? We surround ourselves with things about him. The more I think about her, the more I focus on her, the more I spend time with her, the more I invest in her, the more my heart's going to be drawn to her. That's simple enough, isn't it? So the more I invest in God, the more time I spend with him, the more I desire him, the more I'm going to love him because to know him is to love him, right? And whenever I love him, everything else is going to fall into place. If I love me, if I love this world, then I'll try to manipulate him. I'll try to get advantage of him. I'll try to figure out some way to get what I want out of him or to avoid what I don't want from him. Right? But if I love him, I'm going to want to be close to him. So with that being said, five different motivations, love, fear, debt, entitlement, or fear of men, if any of these other things are motivating us besides love, it doesn't mean that God's mad at us. But it means that we don't know him the way we need to. We've misunderstood who he is. We've misunderstood how we relate to him. So does anyone have any questions or comments on what we looked at tonight? If anyone's got anything, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call tonight. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And Lord, we do thank you for the truth from your word. 
And Lord, I know I've been been guilty of being motivated by more than one of these things, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to reconfigure our minds, rewire our minds, Lord, and look at you properly and our relationship with you properly, Lord, that we no longer try to manipulate or uh, no longer try to uh, figure you out or use you to our advantage, but instead, Lord, that we realize that uh, you're the God of all creation and you desire to have a relationship with us, that you love us, that you're merciful toward us, that you can be trusted and that you can uh, that the service is secondary, Lord. And Lord, I just pray, just thank you so much for all that you do. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would uh, would just help us in these things. Help us meditate on it, chew on it this week. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And my uncle got a second opinion, and he basically.